0: Good morning. I'm Brad DeLong, and this, this is my morning coffee. I readily and enthusiastically confess that I am a great fan of, quote, applied history, unquote. In my view, theoretical arguments and conceptual frameworks are ultimately nothing but distilled, crystallized, and chemically cooked history. After all, what else could they possibly be? And it is very important to know whether the distillation, crystallization, and chemical cooking processes that underpinned the theory and made the conceptual frameworks were honest ones. And that can only be done by getting good, real historians into the mix, those who care most about whether they are telling it via Eigenlick gewesen and doing so in a prominent and substantial way. But if what Neil Ferguson is producing these days is what applied history is going to be in practice, well then, ay 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 Let me quote a little bit from Neil Ferguson's Fetch the Purple Toga, Emperor Trump is Here. Quote, think of Harvey Weinstein, the predator whose behavior was for years an open secret, precisely among the Hollywood types who were so shrill last year in their condemnation of Donald Trump. For his boasts about grabbing women by their genitals, in my experience, few things enrage ordinary Americans more than the hypocrisy of liberal elites. At least Trump does not pretend to be a feminist. In the brilliant Tom Rube Holland, in his book *Rubicon: The Triumph and Tragedy of the Roman Republic*, writes, "Censoriousness was the mirror image of a drooling appetite for lurid fantasy." Yes, that does sound familiar. In Holland's telling, the Roman Republic dies too imperceptibly to be mourned. Superficially, its decline was the result of recurrent civil war, but the underlying causes were the self-indulgence and social isolation of the Roman elite, the alienation of the plebeian masses, the political ascendancy of the generals, and the opportunities all these trends created for demagogues. Reading Holland's description of the libidinous orgies and extravagant cuisine of Dai, the fabulous Roman resort on the Gulf of Naples, it is impossible not to be reminded of present-day La La Land. Unquote. Um, It goes on. But back up. Even Ferguson admits that for the Roman Republic, its decline was the result of recurrent civil war. However, this, he says, is only superficially the case. So let's look at the record. According to Plutarch, who was not the historian first responder, but who is appallingly close to being our only source for this stuff, the problems began in 133 BC, um, you know, when it was said that it would be a shame and a great disgrace if Tribune Tiberius Symponius Gracchus, a son of Gracchus, a grandson of Publius Cornelius Scipio Africanus, and a champion of the Roman people, for fear of a raven, should refuse to obey the summons of his fellow citizens. Such shameful conduct, moreover, would not be made a mere matter of ridicules from his enemies. But what happened? Um, Fulvius Flaccus, a senator, then came to Gracchus and told him that at the session of the Senate, the party of the rich were purporting to kill Tiberius themselves and for this purpose had under arms a multitude of their friends and slaves. Tiberius reported this to those who stood about him. They at once girded up their togas and, breaking in pieces the spear shafts with which the officers distributed back the crowd, distributed the fragments among themselves as clubs. His opponents ran to the Senate and told that body that Tiberius was asking for a crown. All the senators were greatly disturbed, and Publius Cornelius Scipio Nasica demanded that the consul should come to the rescue of the state and put down the tyrant. The consul replied with mildness that he would resort to no violence and put no citizen to death without a trial. If, however, the people under persuasion or compulsion from Tiberius should vote anything unlawful, he would not regard this vote as binding. Thereupon, Nasica sprang to his feet and said, Since then the chief magistrate betrays the state. Do ye who wish to succor the laws follow me? With these words, he covered his head with the skirt of the toga and set out for the capital. All the senators who followed him wrapped their togas around their left arms and pushed aside those who stood in their past, seized the fragments and legs of the benches that were shattered by the crowd in its flight, and went up against Tiberius, smiting those who were drawn up to protect him. Of these, there was a rout and a slaughter. As Tiberius strove to rise to his feet, he received the first blow, as everyone admits, from Publius Satirius, who smoke him on the head with the leg of a bench. To the second bow glow claim was made by Lucius Rufus, who plumed himself upon it as some noble deed. This is said to have been the first sedition of Rome to end in bloodshed and the death of citizens. The rest, though neither trifling nor raised for trifling objects, were settled by mutual concessions, the nobles yielding from fear of the multitude, and the people out of respect for the Senate. And it was thought that even on this occasion, Tiberius would have given way without difficulty had persuasion been brought to bear against him. A decade later, in one hundred twenty one BC, the consul Lucius Opimius would seize upon the murder of his attendant, Quintus Antilius, by partisans of Tiberius's brother Gaius, as a pretext for the Senate's passage of the Senatus Consultum Ultimum. Consules darent operam ne quid detrimenti res publica caperet, that the consuls see to it the republic suffer no harm, and then murder Gaius. Afterwards, politicians who thought Rome should do more to subdivide public land engrossed by rich senators, either thought better of proposing agrarian reform laws or recognized that they needed an army, and it turned out they could raise armies that would be loyal to them rather than to the constitution of the republic. And so we have, between the death of Gaius Sempronius Gracchus and the fall of the Republic, we have 20 Roman military politicians who raised and commanded armies loyal to themselves, sometimes within, but often outside, the Republic's legal framework. 1. Gaius Marius, Consul 107-104-102-102-101-186 Lucius Cornelius Sulla, Consul 88, dictator eighty two eighty one, Consul 80, Gnaeus Pompeius Strabo. Consul 89, Gnaeus Papirius Carbo. Consul 85, 84, 82. Quintus Sertorius, Marcus Licinius Crassus. Consul sixty nine fifty four, 54. Nias Pompeius Magnus. Consul 69, Lucius Sergius Catalina. Gaius Julius Caesar, Consul 59, 48, 47, 46, 45, 44, Dictator, 49 to 44. Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, Consul 46 and 42. Sextus Pompeius. Gaius Vibius Pansa Catronianus Consul 43. Aulus Hirtius, Consul 43. Marcus Junius Brutus, Gaius Cassius Longinus. Quintus Caecilius Fabius Metellus Scipio, Marcus Porcius Cato, Marcus Antonius, consul forty-four thirty-four, Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa, consul thirty-seven twenty-eight and twenty-seven, and of course, the man whose name at birth was Gaius Octavius Thurinus, consul forty-three thirty-three thirty-one thirty twenty-nine twenty-eight. 27, 26, 25, 24, 23, 5, and 2 BC. All of these commanded armies loyal to themselves and not to the Senate, or to whatever rump of the Senate was sitting in Rome and issuing Senatus Consulta. None of these were both A. victorious, and B. willing after victory to do what was necessary to make future armies loyal to the Senate rather than future armies loyal to their commanders. Although Sulla did try, Um, but as I believe was said, Sulla could expel and expunge everything from the Constitution except his own example. Thus, it is no accident, given the chain of norm-breaking starting from Nasica and continuing from the murders of the two Gracchi brothers, that the style of post-Republican Rulers became imperator, victorious army commander, rather than king or dictator of something else. Plutarch saw this collapse of republican liberty and order as a chain of norm-breaking, and I think he was right. First, Scipio-Nasica's faction broke the norm that the prosperity from conquest was to be widely shared, not least through ample and lavish land distribution and colonization, Second, Scipionasica's, and then Opimium's Optimates, broke the norm that Roman magistrates not be murdered in the streets. Third, Gaius Marius broke the norm that soldiers be recruited only from those whose household and kin had something of property to lose, and hence a substantial stake in the established order. Fourth, Gaius Marius broke the norm that magistracies be short-term and temporary. Fifth, Lucius Sulla broke the norm that commanders obeyed the Senate and people rather than marching on Rome to cow them with their soldiers. Sixth, Pompey broke the norm that commanders disband their armies after campaigns rather than hold them in reserve. Seventh, Bibulus broke the norm that magistrates not filibuster, not declare that every day was inauspicious for public legislation. Eighth, Caesar broke the norm that magistrates... the religious vetoes of their filibustering colleagues. Ninth, Pompey broke the norm that Roman politicians respect their peers as equals. Tenth, Caesar broke the norm that Roman politicians respect their superiors and the Senate and imitated Sulla and Cross, the Rubicon. Why were these norm-breaking successful? Why did they succeed? Plutarch says it was out of the, quote, hatred and anger of the rich, unquote, that led them to react in discontent at the distribution of land and spoils in a new way. Before, he said, there had always been compromise and adjustment and incremental change. Quote, the nobles yielding from the fear of the multitude and the people out of respect for the Senate, unquote. But Publius Cornelius Scipio Nasica's generation changed that, both in their unwillingness to share the profits of imperial conquest and in their willingness to kill opposing political leaders. Why did the ball keep rolling? Because increased maldistribution opened up further opportunities for norm-breaking. Male Roman citizens from 450 BC to 150 BC joined the legions and got victory, loot, land, and honor at the hands of the Senate. It was a profitable and respected thing to do with your life. Afterwards, starting with the political ascendancy of Cornelius Publius Cornelius Scipio Nasica and his faction, and dating down to Marcus Porcius Cato the younger's refusal to honor Pompey's soldiers returning from their victorious campaign in the, in, in the east while victory in the legions would still get you victory and booty it would not get the distribution of land for to farm to you and your kinfolk not unless your general kept his hands firmly on the reins of power and for that to happen, you needed to be willing to come back to the standards and to fight against your fellow citizens, if necessary. Theoretical approaches and conceptual frameworks to be derived from this historical episode, told V. S. Eigentlich Gewesen many and important applications to today. No direct applications, but a lot of thoughtful ideas and questions raised. For history does rhyme, even though it does not repeat itself. But these questions, ideas, approaches, frameworks, and possible applications are not those that Neil Ferguson wants to draw. His version of history is not vi S. Eigentlick in the least. His version seems to blame the fall of Roman republican liberty on luxus, luxury, and avaritia, avarice, which then together lead to a lust for rule. This is not in Plutarch's story. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from an after-the-fact attempted rationalization by the rich that Tiberius Gracchus was justly murdered because he was a pervert who had been corrupted by the luxuries of the Greek-speaking East, um, of the kingdom of Pergamum, which had been willed to Rome, by its last king. you know That the senators, the right-wing, optimates, rich senators, wanting to keep land reform from coming to the fore, were right to kill Tiberius Gracchus because he was a pervert corrupt, corrupted by luxury. That was the argument. It was a distraction back then. And kind of everyone who... I would say, was not in the pay of the faction of the rich land-engrossing senators dominating the Senate of the Roman Republic, understood that it was a distraction. At a rhetorical level, Ferguson's piece is something that will be, as Jacob Levy likes to say, an interesting piece for far-future historians at radioactive Lebowitz-Morlock University to decode. The villains as Neil Ferguson watches the decline of the American Republic, are first Harvey Weinstein. Second, Donald Trump, but Donald Trump isn't really a Vizslan because he at least is not a hypocrite pretending to be feminist. And hypocrisy is the big sin of the, quote, Hollywood types who were so shrill in the last year in their condemnation of Donald Trump, unquote. Hypocrites whom the American people hate above all others. The other villains, Ben Affleck, Hillary Rodham Clinton, liberal elites, the celebrities of Los Angeles. And then Ferguson adds into that list, Woodrow Wilson, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Harry S. Truman, and the internet. This is a strange list of villains indeed. And on the application level, Ferguson's reading of Holland's History of Rome sees the causes of the possible imminent fall of the Romerican Republic in America as, quote, the self-indulgence and social isolation of the Roman elite, the alienation of the plebeian masses, the political ascendancy of the generals, the opportunities all these trends created for demagogues, Um, and then the kicker, the libidinous orgies and extravagant cuisine of Bailly, the fabled Roman resort that reminds me of La La Land. But is this founded in the Roman experience as it really happened? No, 10,000 times no, no, no. Were the military political powerful ones of the late Roman Republic able to raise and command armies loyal to themselves because of Ferguson's list of causes? Let's run through it. One, the self-indulgence of the Roman elite? Nope. An addiction to Eastern, Greek, or Egyptian vices was a propaganda accusation that members of the Senate and the Tribunate hurled against each other. Self-control was a principal Roman virtue, and to be ridden by your vices and your addictions showed that you were unfit to hold imperium. But Gaius Julius Caesar's being, quote, every woman's husband and every man's wife, unquote, did not seem to harm the loyalty of his soldiers, or his political and military skill. Two, the libidinous orgies and extravagant cuisine of Bailly? Um, Nope, see above. Three, the social isolation of the Roman elite? Nope, Roman society was patterned in a very strong patron-client network. You could not be socially isolated and remain part of the elite. And the fact that all elite factions had powerful social network hooks into a population with lots of soldiers and ex-soldiers in it was what made the civil wars possible. Four, the opportunities created for demagogues? Which demagogues? Gang leaders Titus Annius Milo and Publius Claudius Pulcher and their like? But they were much more tools of broader political factions that were themselves engaged in norm-breaking than independent actors. Lucius Apulius Saturninus? Publius Sulpicius Rufus, Tiberius Cypronius Gracchus, and Gaius Sempronius Gracchus. Are those the demagogues? But they had no armies. And so they were killed. By the Senate. By senators. So nope. Five. The political ascendancy of the generals. Well, this is not a cause, but an effect. This is the thing to be explained. This is the theory of civil wars that Ferguson dismisses as superficial, right? But it is a key question. Why would Rome's citizens in the 4th, 3rd, and 2nd centuries BC fight for and be loyal to the Senate and the consuls, while in the 1st century BC they fought for and were loyal to their generals and were in fact willing to threaten and to actually march on Rome? Six, the alienation of the plebeian masses. Here we are indeed getting somewhere. But why were the plebeian masses alienated? Could it be that they thought they deserved... A fair share of imperial prosperity. A square deal like progressive Teddy Roosevelt um, wanted to give them. A new deal um, like um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt wanted to give them. A fair deal like Harry S. Truman. And did not the hubris of elites in seeking to engross the spoils of empire and stymie all reform and distribution call forth nemesis? That would be a much better form of applied history, I think. It would not focus on hypocritical liberal elites, L.A. celebrity parties, Hillary Rodham Clinton and Theodore Roosevelt. It would focus on income and wealth inequality and on those so eager to break political norms to defend it. Certainly that was Plutarch's take, that it was the hatred and anger of the rich which broke the probability of compromise, the nobles yielding from fear of the multitude, and the people out of respect for the Senate, and that started the ball rolling. And he was not there, he was not our historian first responder, but he is the closest thing we have, the first surviving responder who was able to talk to many and to read much that is forever lost to us. Listen to him. I'm Brad DeLong, and this is my morning coffee,